Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm your guest host, Emmy Vadness, filling in for Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is intrusive thoughts. My guest is Dr. David Hanscom, who's been a guest on New Thinking Aloud a previous time where we had a conversation about healing chronic pain. He is author of Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain, and Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Take Control with a Spine Surgeon's Advice. David is based in the San Francisco Bay Area, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, David. It's wonderful to have you back with us on New Thinking Aloud again. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And as you know, I always enjoy conversations immensely. And uh, you have a lot going on, lots of creative ideas. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to be back. As a spine surgeon, you shared in our previous conversation and in your books that essentially you feel that you are or were doing surgery on anxiety. Absolutely. And... What woke me up is that you become a spine surgeon by suppressing stress. So we view ourselves as tough, and we are. My mantra was bring it on. I mean, there's nothing that I couldn't take, and I brought, I took on incredible amounts of stress, and I was good at it. And then I got sick, and I didn't know why. When I say I got sick, I went from being a fearless spine surgeon. I was one of the top surgeons in the country. I did the worst cases you can imagine. 10, 12 hour cases, redos. Some people had 15 operations before I worked on them. So I was under a lot of stress, but I prided myself on being able to process stress at a level that it just, just didn't phase me. And then one day I went from being a fearless spine surgeon to a panic attack. And I'm going, what just happened? And I didn't know what anxiety was. I had to look it up in a textbook one day when a patient came in with an anxiety disorder. I'm going, what's that? So what I eventually realized, I was raised in a very chaotic, <coughs> abusive household, and anxiety and anger were the norm. And so I just thought it was normal to be fired up, wired up, whatever it was. So the same energy that took me to, to the top of the hill took me right down the other side. And that's what happens to many professionals. And I deal with lots of physicians with burnout, including myself. So I went into a 15-year tailspin of anxiety, depression, ringing in my ears, OCD, um, extreme anxiety, depression, burning sensation. I had 17 different physical and mental symptoms. I did not know what happened. So I was still doing spine surgery, and I quit doing one operation called a fusion for back pain because the success rate was only 20%. It's a big operation. It causes damage to the body. And as I started to come on my own tailspin, I didn't know, I, again, I didn't know how I got into it. I didn't know how I came out of it. But as I started sharing my strategies with my patients, it started to get better. I get better. So over, it took me about five years to figure this out. So for over 20 years, I have no physical and mental symptoms. I'm fine. So I went from extreme distress, suicidal, major anxiety-driven depression to just flat-out thriving at a level that I did not know was possible. 
And so it's been a miraculous journey. But what I'm excited about, I have well over 2,000 patients, and I'm just estimating right now, and I wish I'd been able to click the data as I went along, well over 2,000 patients that have had the same experience. I just had an email yesterday, same thing. She goes, I was very skeptical of your process. But by the way, it's not my process. It's just documented medical science of disapplying known medical treatments to anxiety. The data is already there. She, she said, I was very skeptical of your process, and I don't understand what's going on. My anxiety is down. My pain is almost gone. And I told her, she says, I'm worried about having a setback. I go, well, you are going to have a setback because life keeps coming at you. But she learned how to process life in a way that's very effective, very efficient. And once somebody has that degree of change, they always continue to get better and better and better over time. So that's what happens. When you break free of this thing, anxiety drops, pain drops, your enjoyment of life goes to the ceiling, and it's the most rewarding thing I've ever done. But compare that to a 20% success rate of doing a fusion for back pain. So three years ago, I quit my practice. I was watching so much damage being done to people's spines. Again, I was the final end-of-the-line road surgeon that I felt like I needed to go upstream and do what I could do to actually stop the surgery from being done in the first place. So here I am. What did you do to help yourself recover from all of that burnout? And I would imagine seeing all of your patients suffering really probably took quite an emotional toll on you as well. Well, watching the needless suffering still takes a big emotional toll. And so what's happened, spine surgery is becoming more aggressive. We're doing bigger operations on normally aging spines. We're badly damaging people. And at the same time, we're getting better at helping people heal without any risk at all. So I have to fight this every day because I get really upset personally watching people being hurt unnecessarily. And then I'm also watching this opportunity of people getting better. And we just have so many people consistently, get, and it's not just me. I mean, there's a, there's a growing number of practitioners who understand how to calm down the nervous system. It's based on deep science. It's based on the body's chemistry or what we call physiology. Physiology is how the body functions. And so it's based on physiology. <clears throat> As you regulate your body's physiology, everything improves. So if you're in a fight-or-flight physiology, is that your body's on hyper-alert, <clears throat> your nervous system is actually inflamed, it's sensitized, the speed of nerve conduction in your body goes up, it's sensitized, and then all your organs start responding in very odd ways. So irritable bowel, spastic bladder, burning sensations, skin rashes, migraines, ringing, ringing in the ears are all based on your body's chemistry. And if you think about it logically, we actually learned this in medical school, actually in college and high school, about fight or flight. What I had forgotten about as a surgeon, that part of fight or flight involves the inflammatory process. And so when your body is inflamed, all your organs are responding in a very dramatic way, with the most dramatic example being autoimmune disorders. I mean, they don't, they don't just happen. Not everybody gets an autoimmune disorder. You're, you're, the body is, as you know, physically really traumatized and trashed by an autoimmune disorder. So let's take systemic lupus, for instance, which literally attacks every organ in your body. Kidney failure, liver failure, brain changes, heart changes. I mean, it's unbelievable what the immune system can do to your body. So that's not psychological. People think about stress being psychological. It's not. 
It's your body's total response to a threat. So your body, every living creature is designed to, th- to survive. It's not designed to have a good time. You go into a rest and digest mode just to regenerate to go to fight or flight. But your body's responsibility is to keep you alive. And then human consciousness just came along about 100,000 years ago in the course of evolution. And we know how to physically survive, but humans do not know how to emotionally survive. But yet emotional pain is processed in the same way as physical pain. It's the same thing. But we don't know how to navigate consciousness. Unpleasant, repetitive thoughts are at the core of anxiety, would you say? The answer is yes. So I want to take a a model called dynamic healing. So you have your stresses, your circumstances that you have to process in order to stay alive. So then you have your nervous system that's interpreted these signals. Then it sends out a response. So response could be running. It could be relaxing. It could be whatever it is. Your body is fired up or relaxes to based on what your brain says is safe or dangerous. So it turns out that thoughts are sensory input that are perceived the same way as a physical threat. The research term is called unpleasant repetitive thoughts, URTs. And so those unpleasant repetitive thoughts actually come into your nervous system. Your body says danger, and your body is in a physiological state of threat. And so the problem is we cannot escape our consciousness. We cannot escape our thoughts. It turns out that repressed thoughts and emotions are actually more of a threat than ones that are expressed. So whether you feel these unpleasant thoughts or repress them, either way, your body's physiology is on fire. But I want to take just for a second here is that it sounds like this is psychological, but look at thoughts as a separate entity. Of course, it's part of the psyche, but thoughts are the threat. Your emotions is what you feel. In other words, your body is fired up, sensitized. You feel agitated, afraid, ashamed, guilty. All those are emotions, but your your body's interpreting your body. Your brain is interpreting your body's chemistry. So thoughts are the threat. Your emotions are the response. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. So it took me ten years to figure this out. What I did know, it was already in the literature. This is not David Hanscom speaking. This is thousands and thousands of research papers saying that every, I'm going to, I'm going to say away here just for a second. So we have a work group that meets twice a month and it's people from all the deep, some of the most brilliant scientists from all over the world. These people are absolute geniuses. And what's becoming apparent as we keep talking to each other is that every chronic disease, mental and physical, has the same root cause. Same one. So you take anxiety, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder are all inflammatory metabolic disorders. Same thing with Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, cardiac disease, hypertension, obesity are all inflammatory metabolic disorders. So I won't go into the cell biology of the same, but all of these diseases have the same cell dysfunction, every one of them. And as one of my friends says, it's all the same soup. Turns out that long COVID, same thing. It's a chronic disease state. So it turns out that you have to complete the healing cycle to heal, but in a state of constant threat, you cannot complete the healing cycle. So unfortunately, unpleasant thoughts 
keep you in a constant state of threat. Every human being has this problem. Some people way more than others. I had what's called a full-blown obsessive compulsive disorder in why we're talking today. And I didn't know what it was. So what happened is I was a master at suppressing everything. I mean, that was my, my nickname in high school was the brick. And I thought it was a compliment. It's not a compliment. It's not a good idea to suppress everything. So what happens, you train yourself not to feel. So what happened, my ears started to rain, my feet started to burn, my stomach was a mess. And then I think I told you this panic attack happened in 1990 in five minutes. I went from being a fearless surgeon to crippling anxiety. So I thought anxiety was a psychological disorder. I went into 13 years of psychotherapy, which, you know, I'm, I'm for psychotherapy, but it's the wrong process for this problem because anxiety is a physiological state. So when you're in fight or flight, your body's fired up. The term that humans use for that sensation is anxiety. So it's intended from an evolutionary standpoint to be a sensation so unpleasant that it forces you to take action to survive. When you're trapped, your body kicks in more stress chemistry and you become angry. So anxiety and anger are the same entity. So the problem with thoughts, again, unpleasant repetitive thoughts, whether you sense them or repress them, they're a constant threat that I think is the basis of all chronic disease. Because again, we know emotional pain and physical pain are processed in the same region of the brain. You have the same physiological response, fight or flight, and it's sustained. We also know that sustained stress causes major diseases. That's well documented. Well, I mean, is dying seven years early a psychological issue? No. Is an autoimmune disorder that's crippling your entire body a psychological issue? No. Why does that happen? Because your brain's taking these signals and saying, this is dangerous. And so your body's in fight or flight, which includes the immune system, which includes firing up your fuel consumption. So you start cannibalizing your tissues. You start destroying your tissues with these really aggressive what we call white blood cells or inflammatory cells, and people get sick. So the essence of all chronic mental disease is the same process, same cell, same process at the cellular genetic level. So I think the focus today, though, was on the obsessive thought patterns. And this is a, what I call it the curse of consciousness, is our inability to escape our thoughts. What I didn't know is that I thought anxiety was psychological, and we're trying to pull it out of the diagnostic coding system because it's the driving force behind all these psychological behaviors or psychological diagnosis. So trying to avoid the sensation drives us to do things that are, that are very dysfunctional. So we don't know what to do. Nobody teaches us what to do. But the other really key issue of this conversation is that this unconscious survival response is automatic, is hardwired. We have no say over it. So a friend of mine, Bruce Lipton, and I have put, to, put together some tapes, and he makes a really good point. He says, to try to change anxiety and anger, you might as well be talking to the hard drive of your computer. There's nobody home. These are unresponsive, automatic, hardwired reactions. They are one million times more powerful than your conscious brain. So if you want to try to, if you want to, try to control this reaction, you're in trouble. So remember, the action is a survival one. It's actually protecting you. It's a gift. It's the gift of life that keeps us alive is anxiety. 
So for the rest of the discussion, I want to take, I want to get rid of the word anxiety and just call it an activated threat state. I want to get rid of the word anger and say a hyperactivated threat state. So anxiety and anger are activated threat responses. They are physiological states. They are not psychological. Notice they are the response to a threat. They're not the cause. David, can you share a little bit more about what you mean about it not being psychological? I, I completely agree with you, and I understand myself um, having studied a lot of the human body and, and function and physiology, and maybe some of the listeners have, or maybe they haven't, but we do have bodies, and um, we do have hearts that beat faster when we feel under threat, and it gets our blood pressure up, our shoulders come up, so that we can fight, flight, or freeze. At the same time, we do have thoughts, and we might um, appraise a situation as being maybe safe or a threat. So can you just share a little bit more about why you think it's not psychological at all? So the psyche is the, one of the threats. In other words, it's one of the stresses that come into your nervous system that are interpreted the same way as a dog charging at you or a bully or a robber. So your, your brain perceives these unpleasant thoughts as a threat. So yes, the psyche is involved, but we're t what we're talking about here is anxiety. In other words, that unpleasant sensation that we put all sorts of words to is a million times stronger than your conscious brain. So it's really, really important, I think, to just take thoughts, both expressed and repressed thoughts, as a, un, as a threat. And then you have the threat response, which is the physiology. So the threat response is what we call anxiety. And again, we're, trying, we're going to try to use the word activated threat response. So people don't like it. We're not supposed to like it. We'll never like it. It's intended to be so unpleasant that it forces us to take action. So people feel guilty. They feel ashamed, all sorts of stuff, because it's an unpleasant survival reaction. So what I want to talk about today is that we are starting to think that there's a connection in the brain on what's called a functional MRI scan between two parts of the brain. One part's the autonomic nervous system and the other part's the thinking center of the brain. And when that connection exists and somebody has a new injury, there's an 80 to 90% chance that they'll develop chronic pain in that new site. So the question is, why is that connection there in the first place? So our contention is, well, maybe it's consciousness. So you have this whole process of ongoing repetitive URTs, unpleasant repetitive thoughts that are firing away. Your brain memorizes this pathway, and then you start plugging in body parts. So these obsessive, I'm going to use the word obsessive thought patterns. I remember the way we all stay alive is that we memorize everything. I know if I sit in a chair, it's going to be solid. If I touch a hot stove, it's going to be hot. I don't have to learn that every time. Then we put mean, meaning to things. So I have a picture of my granddaughter on the wall. It means a lot different to me than it does to you. So this book I'm reading means a lot more to me than you. I've read it. You haven't. So think about this carefully. We, we put meaning to everything. So that's what consciousness does. And it gets memorized. So these thought patterns become embedded in our brain. And then these unpleasant thought patterns get embedded in our brain. Then when we try to get rid of them, we've, we're actually given them neurological attention. And whether we think them or suppress them, it's like a basketball spinning on your finger. You keep spinning, spinning the basketball because you're giving it neurological attention. 
In other words, you're, you're helping your brain memorize these thought patterns that become repetitive. Then they, then they become completely independent, completely non-responsive to, to rational interventions. And the classic example that is phantom limb pain, where somebody has an amputated arm or leg, and they still feel the arm or leg, and they often feel the pain they had before the amputation. Well, why is that? Well, clearly your brain has memorized the pain. Same thing with these thoughts. I call it phantom brain pain. You have these thought patterns that keep spinning away. The other metaphor I use is like those little dust, you know, those little dust devils are in the desert that are spinning away. So there's trillions of them in your brain that are spinning away, spinning, spinning, spinning. And a lot of them are functional. In other words, I know if I touch a hot stove, it's going to be hot. So that's an established pattern that's functional. But a lot of, but a lot of our thought patterns are established by what people have told us what to do what we think we should do. Most of the time, if you look at the way people are raised and developed, we're told how we should be, but a lot of it's based on criticism. So we get this self-critical voice in our head that keeps going on over and over and over again, and it doesn't stop. So we memorize the self-critical voice, then we try to do battle with it to feel better about ourselves, and this is a topic of another conversation maybe, is I call it the myth of self-esteem, Probably the most deadly thing ever perpetrated on the human race is self-esteem. You're using irrational means to do these national survival circuits. By the way, the survival circuits, again, are a gift of what keeps you alive. But you have to separate your identity from this massive, unpleasant reaction. You can't feel guilty or ashamed about it because it's keeping you alive. Everybody has it. But you separate your identity from it. It does its job. Then you get to do... Your job as a human being, which is being alive, thriving, giving back, spiritual journey, all those things get to happen when you're not fighting these massive survival circuits against a million to one ratio of your survival reactions compared to your conscious brain. So it's magical that once people understand this process of separating out your physiology from your consciousness, it's a huge difference. Huge. You're making a comparison between phantom limb pain and phantom brain pain. And let me see if I understand this correctly. You're saying that if a person has an experience that causes their threat response to become activated, when that threat is no longer there, and maybe they've suppressed their response to it, it actually can become stronger. So you're suggesting that this phantom brain pain is that even though that threat is no longer there, the person can still feel the emotional and or physical pain? Yes. Well, you've heard the term called ACEs, ACE scores, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Score. Okay, so you're a kid raised in an abusive, abusive environment, so you're perceiving much of the world as dangerous, except to you as a child it's normal. So as an adult, when things aren't dangerous, your perception, your brain doesn't perceive it any differently. That's why there's such a deadly effect of what you have when you have a certain age score, adverse childhood experiences, which is neglect, abuse, prison, you know, parent in prison, parent on drugs. There's a lot of adverse childhood experiences that if you have an age score above a certain score, you have a higher chance of heart disease, depression, suicide, anxiety. It's unbelievable what the health effects are of early age scores because your brain has memorized danger. And until you can give your brain what we call cues of safety as an adult, your brain is going to continue to function that way. So we are programmed, right this very second, you and I are programmed by our entire lives up to this very second. 
humans are very unique in this and we have consciousness. So, you know, my cat in about six or eight weeks can take care of herself. A lot of animals can take care of themselves right away. Humans are incredibly unique is that we're very dependent on our parents in our society to keep us safe and alive long enough to take care of ourselves. So we're programmed, 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 but we also have a consciousness that we've become who the people around us think that we're supposed to be. We're not who we are. We're, we're become who we're supposed to be. So a lot of these things that we're supposed to be are not very functional. You've heard the term cognitive distortions, which I think self-esteem is basically made up of cognitive distortions. So you get these stories about our lives and our identity and how we fit in. And it's a disaster. But the bottom line is, going back to your original question, I'm giving you a very long answer to a simple question about the psyche, is that thoughts are sensory input, which is the psyche, but the sensation generated, the anxiety is a physiological response. So anxiety is a physiological state. So I want to talk about the obsessive thought pattern separately, because this is the part I'm working on this year in a big way. So I had an obsessive compulsive disorder. It's manifested by multiple, vivid, intense, intrusive thoughts that become almost hallucinations. And what happens, they don't stop. And so I hit this wall at about age 30, about 45. In other words, I hit the anxiety. And over the next five years, I started progressing into these incredibly intrusive thoughts. And the world knows very clearly that I've written articles from my spine journal. I was suicidal. I actually started to commit suicide. And what drove me to the ground were these repetitive thoughts and they were torturous and I could not escape them. And often when I was on vacation or relaxing, it was worse because I wasn't distracted. They eventually became so strong that it didn't matter what I did. And for whatever reasons, I could still do surgery because it was so consuming in surgery. I just, you know, crowded everything else out. And then when I seen patients, they were also crowded out for the most part, until the very end, where even being in the office talking to patients couldn't stop the station coming at me. But if I was relaxing, it was a disaster. So where do you go? If you can't relax and enjoy your life with these thoughts barraging you, what do you do? And, and I'll have to say in respect, I'm a strong advocate of psychotherapy for lots of different reasons, but it's the wrong solution for anxiety. Because what happens, the solution, we'll talk about the solution in a second, these obsessive thought patterns to me are a little bit different animal than anxiety. And I've been trying to get a handle on how to depict these things. So you have unpleasant, repetitive thoughts that you learn not to react to. Your body's physiology drops down. Your enjoyment of life goes up dramatically. Your identity changes. But even still, as people heal, one of the last things to disappear are these crazy, disruptive despicable thoughts. And so what happens, the way it works is that the most well-intentioned people have the worst problem with this. Because what happens if you're a sociopath, you're not really burdened by good intentions. You're not suppressing very much. You just think it. Sometimes you do it. So it's the most well-intentioned people perversely who are tortured by these intrusive thoughts. It's very, very perverse. And I think it's getting way worse than it was when I had it 30 years ago. And it's considered to be a very bright prognosis. And there's a whole thing now called the death of despair amongst teenagers, where these teenage suicide is a higher cause of death than motor vehicle, motor vehicle accidents, which is stunning. Because car accidents are a big deal amongst teenagers. I was terrified when my son was 18 years old. 
suicide's a bigger problem in teens now. They call them the deaths of despair. So my experience working with this age group is that they're tortured by these thoughts. Unbeatable expectations, self-esteem thing, you know, being hooked on the social media. Dr. Lustig out of UC San Francisco gave her a very compelling talk. Um, he'd be a great guest for your show, by the way. Pointing out that the deaths of despair went up very dramatically with the advent of the cell phone, where you had Facebook and everything on it. And the problem with this, with the social media was the like button. That feedback button is what it happened in 2007. He has very compelling slides about how the depths of despair started going through the ceiling with the advent of the smartphone. That's the word I wanted to say. And also diet, sugar. So he wrote a book called Metabolical, also a book called Fat Chance. He's a brilliant endocrinologist, neuroscientist. And so he correlates these depths of despair with diet. Remember, it's all about inflammation. Anxiety is an inflammatory state. And then there's two parts of these obsessive thought patterns that cause them. So I would tell you it's a solvable problem. It is not solvable with the traditional medical model right now. They've actually missed the boat. And I'm not saying I have the final answer, but I can tell you what worked for me. And I worked with a lot of people, pulling them back from the edge, put them back into on course, and they get better. So the prognosis for OCD right now is bad. And I think there's an epidemic of OCD. And I just look at these repetitive, intrusive thought patterns that people jokingly call monkey mind. Well, it's not a joke. This monkey mind just absolutely tortures us. So I think there's way more of this that people want to talk about. I do not like psychological diagnosis. So at what point do these intrusive thoughts become, quote, OCD? So I'm going to define OCD just for a second, the classical terminology for it, because people think it's sort of a joke. There are actually TV programs about people being hoarders and all sorts of stuff. It's not a joke. It's what almost drove me to suicide, which is what's driven many of my colleagues, medical colleagues, to suicide. I mean, maybe a lot of people can relate to this. And as I talk to my people I work with more carefully, people don't want to admit they have them. They're shameful, they're despicable, they're indescribable, they're crazy thoughts. So remember, you have some crazy thought 30 years ago, and you just toss it aside. Well, what you've inadvertently done, you've given it neurological attention. <clears throat> so it comes back again, you toss it aside again. So over 30 years, as you keep tossing it aside, it starts to grow. So I wrote a website post called Your Demons Are Your, Your, Your Demons Are Robots. They're actually who you're not, right? If they're who, who you were is what you would be doing. So the more of a moral, well-intentioned person you are, the higher the chance is you have these unpleasant thoughts. So you toss them aside, toss them aside. All of a sudden you have these demons coming at you. It's a neurological trick, right? I mean, you just have these crazy thoughts coming at you, you just toss them aside. And since thoughts and emotions become in real, as real in your brain as a chair or a table, they become monsters. But they're just thoughts. They're actually who you are not. Now, it's even more perverse when you have, if you're a well-intentioned person, your conscious brain that's trying to protect you actually says, no, you're not. So actually, if you have positive intentions, it's the same problem. So when you try to suppress the thoughts, or create high ideals. Either way, it's a mismatch between the rational brain and the subconscious brain. So what happens with OCD is manifested by repetitive intrusive thoughts. There's internal OCD, which you have thought, counter thought, or just suppress it. 
You have extra OCD, which is manifested by repetitive behaviors, climbing up and down stairs, backing your car up and down, washing your hands. And the thoughts come in four categories. They come in religion, dirt, sex, and violence. All these thoughts come at you, and they become more and more vivid. And they are brutal. And I will honestly tell you, if I had to live the rest of my life with that degree of intrusive, unpleasant thoughts, I'd just be out of here. I mean, it's no question about it. I could not live my life in that kind of mental pain. And I don't talk to my patients in detail because I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I did start asking the question, look, if you're to live with your anxiety or your pain, what do you want me to do? And none of them wanted to live with the anxiety. They could sort of deal with the physical pain, but they couldn't deal with the ongoing, repetitive, unpleasant thoughts. These are all high-level professionals, accomplished people, 40 to 60 years old. In Sun Valley, Idaho, where I lived for four years, where I learned all this stuff, there were six males. Now, I don't know the details. I'm just hypothesizing here. But there were six males, all very successful, had families, were, they were wealthy people, every one of them. There were six males between 45 and 60 who committed suicide in a span of 18 months. Why would you do that? So one guy was in my office who, he did not commit suicide, but he was in tears because he had just sold his business for $16 million. But he didn't know what to do. He was beside himself, well, what do I do now? So what happens again when you're not distracted by busyness or whatever it is, these thoughts just come at you really, really hard. And they're, and again, more of an accomplished, professional, well-intentioned person you are, the harder they come at you. So the prognosis for OCD is poor. And I want to get rid of the diagnosis for a second and just talk about disturbing thought patterns. I don't care if they're a little bit or a lot. They're not that much fun. They're not much fun for anybody. And I will tell you unequivocally, the last 15 years, I just don't have them. They're gone. So I went from extreme suicidal depression, OCD, just driven to the ground with these things, to, to doing just fine. And so I've helped many people out of this hole, and I'm trying to get better at this. That's my goal for the tour of 2022, is really looking at these obsessive thought patterns. And here's my early concepts of how to solve this. How I solved it is how I seem to help other people solve it. There's three parts to it. So the metaphor I'm going to start with is out of a popcorn machine in the theater. You have the popcorn coming in, you have the pot that pops the kernels. And so to me, the metaphor is that the kernels represent your thoughts. And so the thoughts hit the griddle or hit the grill um, and it's hot, like a fired up nervous system. So to me, the the heating element is the fired up nervous system. And so as you can divert the thoughts, and there's a method of doing that, but also turning down the heat, the thoughts disappear. Then the third part of it is you move your brain into where you want to go. So if you are using your conscious brain of distracting and lots of events, events and experiences to distract yourself from these thoughts, it can't work. It doesn't work. So the three parts of it are diverting the thoughts, number two, during, turning down the heat or calming down your nervous system, number three, moving into circuits that are pleasant and enjoyable. It is, it's a technique. There's a technique to do this, and it's a sequence that's really critical. So the top psychologists in the world in the 1990s started looking at a process called expressive writing, 
And they point out with these obsessive thought patterns that what drives these things is the need for mental control. We don't like them, so we try to control them. As I mentioned before, we inadvertently have given them neurological energy. So these top psychologists in the world, notice the expressive writing, simply write down the thoughts and tear them up. And it turns out that it doesn't matter what you write down, but the more graphic the thoughts that you write down, the more effective the process. And so you write down your thoughts and you tear them up. You can't control your thoughts, but you can separate from them. It's just an exercise. And you tear them up for two reasons. One of them is right with absolute freedom, no censoring, because remember, these are crazy thoughts. So you write with freedom. But the, what I think what is more important as you write, sometimes all these issues come up, right? They're not issues. They're just thoughts. So the thoughts are here on the table. You're here. And so that there's now a space separated by vision and feel, which is part of your unconscious brain. And so it's just a separation process that was separating from your thoughts, not trying to control them, simply separating them. And for some reason, it is the one tool that starts the healing process. And they also pointed out there's no alternatives. Now you can do it verbally. Talk therapy doesn't work because you're analyzing these thoughts that are just thoughts. So it's just a separation exercise and it works. It's not the solution though. It's the necessary starting point. So the second part of it with me is I started the expressive writing by accident. And this is what started to break up a 15 year cycle of these craziness in my head. I can't put into words. So again, I didn't know the data, didn't know any of the research. I had just started reading the book, Feeling Good by David Burns. And it's a great book. And I thought it was the book, but it turns out that the writing exercises are actually the biggest part of the solution. So I started to write, and within two weeks, things started to shift for the first time in 15 years. By six, thing, by six weeks, things were a lot better, but these thoughts were still rattling around in my head at a level that I didn't like. So I stayed that way for about four months. Then I ran across the fact that I actually was a super angry person, which I didn't realize. To me, the anger was actually actually disguises perfectionism. Anyway, I went through it very badly. I sort of acknowledged anger, processed it. I just muddled through it. But within six weeks after I somehow waded through or muddled through this anger process, my symptoms started to disappear. The thoughts dropped down. My ears quit ringing after 20 years. My feet quit burning after 25 years. Um, anxiety dropped. Depression dropped. It was unbelievable. But again, I didn't know back then what happened. So I just knew it started the writing. I knew I'd dealt with anger somehow. And within six to 12 weeks, all these symptoms disappeared. Now, the last two years, the neuroscience is extremely clear about what's going on. So I forget about what I learned in medical school. It's about the autonomic nervous system that regulates your body's metabolism or rate of fuel consumption and your inflammatory markers. So the data has shown for decades that anxiety is an inflammatory response. You're under threat. Your body gets inflamed. The sensation is, again, what humans call anxiety. So I was in an activated threat state with the writing, particularly processing anger, the symptoms dropped down. So going back to the metaphor of the cooker in the theater of the popcorn machine is that the expressive writing is the thought diversion. And to me, the anger, anxiety part of it, actually learn how to process that and calm down your body's physiology from threat physiology to safety physiology, you've turned down the heat. So between 
the thought diversion and turning down the heat, that's how you solve these obsessive thought patterns. The final part, which is a little trickier, is that we all want to fix ourselves. We want to fix these thoughts. We want to fix our lives. We want to fix our problem. But from a brain development standpoint, neuroplasticity, your attention on the problem, not the solution. So what you're trying to do, there's ways of letting go of these big survival reactions and moving into a conscious brain that you want to enjoy. But you can't move into the conscious brain until you let go. So it's like learning a new language. So the healing really occurs as you move into the life that you want. So when you quit fighting off anxiety and anger, which you can't take it personally, as you quit fighting those things, you now have the capacity to move into the life that you want. And that's where you get to nurture yourself, you get to heal, we get to move into the spiritual journey, perspective, giving back. All those things are healing. And so the new language is an enjoyable life. The default language is survival. So you're not going to learn to speak French by trying to fix your English, right? So you're not going to learn this new life by fixing your old life. So I have a saying that came out of my head a couple weeks ago called to have a good life. You have to live a good life. You get to practice, to practice learning skills. So just like these self-critical voice is embedded with repetition, you get to embed your brain with what you want. The problem is, is that you're, you might be so beaten down with this anxiety and frustration that you don't have the energy actually to move forward and actually know what you want anymore. You're just trying to survive. Just to review, I'm, I'm talking about these obsessive thought patterns are solvable by thought diversion. There's only one way of doing that. There's many, many, many ways of turning down the heat. And that's a whole different topic about how you actually drop down your body's physiology. But again, we call it dynamic healing. We learn to minimize your time in threat physiology and maximize your time in safety. And as you do that and then move into the life that you want, that's how you solve these obsessive thought patterns. Now, I covered a lot of ground. I don't know if I... No, it's, hopefully it's great. Really clear with this. I mean, there's a lot of layers to this, but I just try to want to get to the core. So there's other methods of thought diversion that still involve some type of, you know, you can do it verbally, you can do it on the computer, you can do it in front of a mirror. So there's lots of ways of doing that. I did write a PDF on expressive writing that explains that in detail. Um, I have a process called the DLC journey that takes people through the sequence of understanding the problem. And then you have to understand that a lot of people are so traumatized that they can't do this. Their emotional pain is so severe that you have to be really careful about, oh, I'm going to do this, 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 and this and get fixed. So your brain may not be able to tolerate it until you actually do some baby steps to get started. So the number one thing in this entire healing journey is being nice to yourself. No no matter what happens, no matter how you quote succeed or fail, it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, you're trying to give your body cues of safety, which means you succeed and you fail good days, bad days. But no matter which way you look at it, the number one thing is actually learning to be nice to yourself. And most of us haven't really learned that very well. We tend to be self-critical because that's what we've been trained to do. So it's a learned skill again, just learning how to nurture yourself and be nice to yourself and actually help your nervous system calm down. 
many people are going through significant stress. Some people are on a, a journey of healing or expanding their consciousnesses through various means. Uh, many people listening to this channel are probably interested in things like meditation, mindfulness. I appreciate that you mentioned the aspect of being kind to yourself because when we have these intrusive thoughts, we can label them as bad or wrong, which can further then make them, give them strength because we're then suppressing them. And we can feel shame about them, which can also bring more charge to them in the physiology. And then we can keep a, a secret about it, which also I believe the research shows that that can exacerbate these even more. Absolutely. Right. Yep. So for those who are listening, who are going through a difficult time, I like what you say about bringing that compassion to yourself because if we continue to judge ourselves harshly, which is why mindfulness meditation and mindfulness practices are so popular these days, it's all about observing yourself with non-judgment, which if you've ever practiced that, <laughs> really does take some practice so that we can ease up on ourselves and help even just that act can help lower the stress response in the body as well. So as a surgeon, I always thought that mindfulness and meditation was sort of nonsense, whatever, right? It's physiological. In other words, with mindfulness, you're changing your brain from racing thoughts to a different sensation, right? Okay, so that again, it drops your body's that physiology. Meditation covers everything. I mean, you're changing your thoughts, you're separating from them. So a skilled meditator, by the way, can do all of this with just meditation. But it's really hard. It's, a, it's not a good starting place. But at the end of the day, somebody who's a really highly skilled meditator can watch the thoughts, they can separate, they can move on. And so, again, what it's doing is stimulating what's called the vagus nerve, which is highly anti-inflammatory, which dramatically changes your body's physiology. So mindfulness meditation is not a fixing process. It's a, it's a way of regulating your body's physiology from threat to safety. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the vagus nerve, that even taking a full deep breath and practicing that even for a few breath cycles or a minute can have significant changes um, on the body and the mind. Correct. Absolutely. So, yeah, for, for me, again, as a physician, I would, I'm a little embarrassed to state that we did learn this in college and medical school and about the vagus nerve, about the autonomic nervous system. But in the midst of, you know, surgeries and training and structure, that sort of went by the wayside. And I just didn't remember that the immune system is part of the inflammatory, is part of the fight or flight response to the immune system. So, yes, sustained exposure to threat physiology is the essence of all disease, physical and mental. And the essence of healing is learning to live your entire life more skillfully in a way. So you, so you process adversity more efficiently and quickly because adversity doesn't stop. Because you become really professional at, at processing this and learning how to nurture yourself. It begins to learn skill. Um, things are, it's a dramatic change. It's not subtle. You mentioning that you also healed your anger and oftentimes, um, well, sometimes thoughts can have a connection. You know, it's that whole, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Do the thoughts come first, then the emotions, or the emotions, then the thought, which the emotions meaning also physiological, but also how we put meaning to something, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And many people can have unresolved grief, unresolved loss, as you mentioned, trauma. And so do you think it's helpful for people to also work through some of their emotions to help these thoughts? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. But here's the thing. It is bidirectional. So it doesn't actually matter. The thoughts fire up the nervous system. The nervous system fires up the thoughts. So it's very bidirectional. And so the chicken and egg happen all the time. Second of all, here's the problem with trauma therapy. So you can't fix your brain. You have to literally rebuild it. So a skilled trauma therapist allows you to feel safe. And so it's, it's a very specific set of skills. If your past trauma is so severe that you can't deal with it, there's a bunch of resources now that allow you to actually gently work into this past world. Because remember, emotional pain is as bad as physical pain, and nobody wants to hurt. So you can only do so much. Again, being kind to yourself, you can't just dive into this thing and fix yourself. So the thing is, though, the, the part that's really critical is that people do trauma therapy, and, and they're still having troubles. Remember, that's just one part of the equation. You still have anger and forgiveness. You have, you still have, what am I loading into my brain? Am I exercising? Am I sleeping? Is my diet anti-inflammatory? So yeah, trauma therapy is definitely part of the equation for many people. But the problem we all get into is that, well, I tried an anti-inflammatory diet or I tried mindfulness and it didn't work. Well, it might help 10 or 15%, but nothing solves the problem by itself because chronic pain is complicated where anxiety is complicated. So if you look at it from a multi-pronged approach, is trauma therapy being extremely helpful, but not the solution, just like expressive writing is extremely helpful, but not the solution, then it starts to make sense. Yeah, so it's a it's a full, healthy lifestyle approach versus just doing one technique for a few moments and then saying it didn't work. Right. Even, even, even people get in a really in a mindfulness mode and um, they really work kind of hard. They get skilled at it, but it's, it's not going to work by itself. It's really helpful. And I will tell you, go back to the expressive writing. I'll beat this drum forever. It's, uh, people can get better without that tool, but nobody ever heals. It's unbelievable. I mean, that is, there's over 1200 research papers that document that this thing works. In fact, there's a book I would, if you want, I think I showed this book to you before called Opening Up by Writing It Down. It's written by Dr. Penny Baker and Dr. Smythe, who are the original researchers on this process. Over 1,200 research papers that point to its effect on asthma, rheumatoid arthritis, wound healing, anxiety, depression, student performance, viral load, and HIV. It's unbelievable. And again, my orthopedic assessment, I'm not a neuroscientist, is that as you separate from your thoughts, there's simply less inflammation. I mean, why else would wounds heal faster? I mean, you, you cut the, you double the wound healing with the expressive writing. Why would that be? And that's pretty, I mean, they do, they do experiments with blistering people's skins, you know, experimental ex- experiments. They do expressive writing versus no expressive writing and people heal the wounds twice as fast with expressive writing. Now, what's all that about? Well, as you're teaching us, you're a person is separating from their thoughts. And I've actually engaged in that since I've learned it from you. And I've noticed that it really does calm the physiology. It calms the body. It helps you feel more relaxed. Your thoughts aren't moving around as much in the head. You know, that's why they say sometimes if you are thinking about what you need to do, then write it down and make a to-do list. And then, and then you have your to-do list. So, but with expressive writing, which was also fascinating to me, is that part of the process is 
once you've written what you want to write, then you tear it up or burn it. Or if you're on a device, you can apparently do a backspace, which I, apparently research has shown that that can be effective as well. And when I've done that, it feels like it's it's releasing something that that's no longer needing to be inside me. Right. And I just want to be really clear to the audience here is that it, it's not a catharsis. In other words, there's trillions of thoughts in your brain. You're not getting rid of these things. But you use the word release. I'll use the word separation. So, yeah, you did release some of the thoughts. You haven't solved them or fixed them. It's just an exercise. And so you're just releasing what's there. And, again, what they're pointing out in this one paper that is the what causes these things in the first place is this need for mental control. Humans have a need for mental control. Because, again, emotional pain is processed the same way as physical pain. We don't like emotional pain, so we suppress it, right? And so that need for control is what drives this whole process. So expressive writing is the one tool that, that starts breaking up those circuits. So, again, I'd just like to finish off just to just remind the audience, just in perspective, um, anxiety and anger are activated threat responses and hyperactivated threat responses. Your body's physiology is on fire. Your thinking brain actually goes offline. You're supposed to be miserable because that's a survival reaction. So you have to, you can't control it. You're going to separate from it and let it do it. Let it, it's a gift. You let it do what it's supposed to do. But as you separate your identity from it, you don't have to feel bad about it anymore. You don't have to feel ashamed or guilty or, or whatever. It has nothing to do with who you are as a person. So as you separate from this reaction, again, that's what this course does called the DOC journey. We also have an app that does the same thing is that it's a sequence of tools that you go through that you learn to become a quote professional at living your life. So you spend less time in fight or flight. So then the obsessive thought patterns start as you turn down the heat. Again, I want to finish off with the obsessive thought patterns. Again, the metaphor of the popcorn machine, the thoughts represent the kernels of popcorn and you divert those with the expressive writing or some form of it. And then there's a lot of ways of turning down the heat. In other words, lowering your body's threat response. And so as you lower the threat response, there's less negative thoughts, but also as the thoughts that come in hit a more calm nervous system, they don't fire off like that. So then the third part is you start moving your brain into where you want to go. So people don't just put up the thoughts. They're not trying to manage them. They heal. These things disappear for the most part. I mean, nothing's perfect, of course, but I can tell you, I'm just, as I talk to people, um, each year that you are healed, it keeps getting better. So I see the first five years after this process started, I had more thoughts in my brain that I wanted to, but over about the last, um, kind of 10 years, just hardly any, which is stunning considering I was suicidal at one point with these crazy thought patterns. So it's a solvable problem. It's just in my patients, I get better say it's disturbingly simple. It's very self-directed. If you can get additional help, of course, that helps. But yeah, it's, it's so solvable. Thank you for explaining that. And just to add, when I did the expressive writing, you're right. It wasn't that the thoughts were completely gone, but also the way that I framed the thoughts. I also got clarity on some of, uh, challenges in my life and how to be more effective as well. And also um, myself working as an in, as an intuitive and doing an intuitive coaching, I find that by writing, I can also connect with my higher self. And so that that's a way of once we can get more into that relaxation state, we can access that higher consciousness where we can 
Our thoughts can be slower. We can see things from a higher perspective, from a state maybe of even love, or at least moving into a place of neutrality, which you know is is huge for a lot of people. And I just want to ask you, David, why do you think the wound healing increases from expressive writing? Which is an inflammatory response. I mean, your, your body's not. Remember, inflammation destroys things. So you're consuming resources to survive. So when you're rested, so part of the fight or flight response is you're consuming fuel. We call it catabolic state. And when you're in rest and digest, it's anabolic or putting fuel into the system. So just from a purely structural standpoint, we do major spine surgery. We make sure people have lots of nutrition, that their protein levels are elevated. So if somebody, if you do surgery on somebody with, with what's called albumin level is less than 3.5, you have a 600% chance, higher chance of a wound infection. 600%. So from a purely nutritional standpoint, we're actually increasing the body's capacity to heal by going anabolic instead of catabolic. So my sense with the expressive writing is the same thing with a different type of methodology. So you come out of fight or flight, which is catabolic, and you're going into rest and digest, which is anabolic, and it's consistent. It's not like one person heals and one doesn't. Consistently, if you are doing expressive writing, but also other things too, wounds heal faster. But autoimmune disorder, I mean, asthma drops down. Rheumatoid arthritis quits progressing. So I bet, and again, we have hundreds and hundreds of patients that just flat out heal. So again, not about managing disease, and yeah. So it's it, and the thing is, it's so self-directed and not so hard to do. Um, we know there's lots of blocks to healing. That's my particular challenge: is help people calm down enough. I do want to say one more thing. I know we have a lot going on here, but when you're in fight or flight, the research MRI scans show that your brain activity goes from the neocortex or the thinking centers down to the survival brain. We all sort of know when we're anxious or frustrated, we can't think so clearly. When the blood flow is changed, your brain is actually inflamed. The regions regions of the brain that actually think clearly actually go offline. You go offline. You go into survival mode. You're doing anything to survive. So one of the blocks to healing is somebody is so angry and frustrated that they can't actually think clearly enough to actually engage in new ideas. It shuts your brain down. So it's that catch-22 that I'm challenged with. And that's why I think the obsessive thought pattern is such a big deal because I do think these obsessive thought patterns are so frustrating. Nobody wants to deal with them. They're painful. They're uncomfortable. That I'm searching, and I'm open to suggestions, by the way, whatever I can do to get people just to calm down enough to calm down these thought patterns and calm down physiology is fair game. This is not a fix-it process. It's learning how to self-regulate your body's physiology so you can heal. Absolutely. And the world needs that now more than ever to be kind to ourselves, loving, compassionate to ourselves so that we can also in turn be that way to each other. Right. Yeah. You can't be really kind to somebody else if you're trying to survive. You just can't do it. I also was involved with a movie called Love Heals, which is being aired as we speak. Have you seen this movie yet or heard about it? Actually, when you mentioned it, I was thinking of the word, the, the movie Heal, but I haven't heard of Love he- Love Heals yet. I'm excited to see it. So it's it put together by um, one of my successful people who had two back surgeries at Field, and she's one of those miraculous stories. Her name is Dana, and her partner, Chrisana, is a filmmaker. And the two of them put together a film called Love Heals. 
And the bottom line is, is that love is actually a physiological state, right? Rest and digest, contentment, safety. And so it does heal, but it's not what we think of the, I mean, the, the only trouble I have with the title of the film is that love heals it. Love has, love's a big word, but it's really one of the ultimate physiological states, just like play, just like companionship, good food, good wine, good friends. It's all about your body feeling safe. So love is actually a physiological state. That's why it actually heals. Not, again, love is a physiological state, not psychological. Well, and there's many types of love, and we all love love, and I think that really at the beginning, middle, and end of the day, we all really do want that love and to feel connected to each other and and feel good. Yep. Any last thoughts you have for today? Well, I just would urge people to, um, you may be listening to this and go, well, this is crazy. You know, I have something wrong with me. I, I need to get fixed, etc." Just allow yourself to just try. Just try. I understand that there's major blocks to engage in the process. You're just connecting to your own body's capacity to heal. This is not magic. I, I mean, I think life is magic, by the way. I mean, life is a miracle. Um, but, you know, just allow your body to do what it's supposed to do. And human consciousness right now really gets in the way of our capacity to heal. So there are techniques and sequences to get out of your own way and allow yourself, you, you mentioned the word connection. So it's connecting to every part of your body, the negatives, the positives, whatever it is. And as you connect to what is, your body's going to heal. It will heal. Dr. David Hanscom, thank you so much for all that you've shared with us, sharing your own personal and professional journey and for continuing onward with all of these other scientists helping us all forward. Thank you so much for being with me. No, I appreciate the chance to share these ideas. I'm excited about it. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. 